0: Hello, this is Dr. Lynn McPherson, and welcome to Palliative Care Chat, the podcast brought to you by the online Master of Science and Graduate Certificate Program at the University of Maryland. I'm very excited to introduce my guest to you today. It's Dr. Dan Moorheim. Dr. Morheim has a long and illustrious career. We could use up the whole 20, 30 minutes just talking about all his accolades. He's a physician who's boarded in internal medicine and emergency medicine. He uh, was a politician, a state legislator Slater for 24 years, an amazing career. Um, I think we met when we both served on the State of Maryland End of Life Council and a yeah. couple of bills that you sponsored that I had some interest in as well. Uh, but the reason we're talking with Dr. Morheim today is he's a prolific author and we're going to be talking about his latest book titled Preparing for a Better End, Expert Lessons on Death and Dying for You and Your Loved Ones, authored by Dr. Morheim and his wife. So Dr. Morheim, welcome.
1: Uh, great to be with you. And I, I'm a big fan of you and the University of Maryland School of Pharmacy. So thanks. Well, thank
0: you. Thank you very much. So tell me, uh, what prompted you to write this book and tell us a little bit about what it's about?
1: as an emergency medicine physician, just too often in my career, I found myself doing things to patients that didn't feel like care. And I used to say, we would do this. We would put an in intubate the patient. We'd put in a central line. And then I kind of realized there was no we, it was I. I was doing these things.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And many of the times, of course, it was helpful, but too many of the times it felt like it wasn't appropriate. So I started thinking about advanced care illness and advanced care Planning. There are a couple of personal experiences as well because everybody's shaped by this. Mm-hmm. Um, my stepfather who's effectively my father uh, died peacefully at home and that was the first time and actually the only time in my life where I've been present in a non-professional way where, where somebody died. And I thought, well, this is a from a public health perspective, this is the cohort 100% of us are in and how can we approach this better? We're, we're in fact the first gen- generation in human history that likely has some say about how we die.
2: Mm. I mean,
1: 100 years ago or 50 years ago, you kind of got your diagnosis and cut your foot, you got an infection and you died. Now, people fortunately, thanks to all the science and great work that everybody's done, um, people are living longer, happier, more productive lives. And and that's great, but the end does come and we can shape that more to our own values Mm -hmm. and uh, empowerment and respect for the kinds of things that we'd like. Mm
0: -hmm. So I saw on the review on Amazon, which was amazing, by the way, that one of the elements you touch on is what doctors want for themselves in terms of end of life. So I assume that you and your wife have thought this through and how does this drive how you talk to patients and families?
1: Well, I would say as a collective group, we clinicians have not done a good job about having these conversations. Um, my training was, you know, if the patient died, it was a failure. We would keep people going long past any hope of recovery. And, and I witnessed that and it didn't feel right. I was too early in my training or too young as a physician to do much about it. But as I, as I got a little more into, the, into my career, I started to think about how to approach this differently. And, and the answer that kept coming is, what, what did the patient want? You know, it's not what I wanted or what I'd like to impose or the system, what did the patient want? Mm And in 1991, advanced directive laws became universal in the United States. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I I asked this question and I was also on the faculty at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, one of my colleagues, you know, uh, how many people have completed advanced directives? I mean, we can look at how many people have sickle cell disease or how many people have heart attacks or cancer or whatever it is you can look up, psoriasis, whatever. And no one had ever done that study. So we got a grant and did that study and found that um, overall only about 40% of Americans had completed advanced directive. It was Mm -hmm. about half that in the minority population. And so we formally in the American Journal of Public Health identified this as a minority health disparity. Mm -hmm. And we asked two other questions. If you don't have an advanced directive and we explained what it was, would you like one? And these were peer-reviewed published studies by the way with all the fancy stuff that I'm summarizing. So so 60% didn't have, 90% of the 60% said they'd like to have one. That's Mm -hmm. over 50% of the adult population. And then we asked, where would you like to get the information? We gave them choices, uh, faith-based, internet, attorneys, healthcare, all were there, but healthcare providers, what you and I do, rank way above all the others. So people want to have that Discussion with their physicians and their pharmacists and their nurse practitioners and their physicians' assistants—in fact, just about anybody that knows something—but uh, we collectively don't do that. But with physicians, at least I'll speak for the physician group. Um, we, we often there were studies that said we don't really offer to our patients what we would want for ourselves, and right. that struck me as a disconnect.
2: Mm-hmm. I know
1: a lot of healthcare people say I wouldn't do this to, to if it were me lying in that bed, I wouldn't get that, but then we do it to them anyways, and. And we need to make that synchronous. And it, it has to do with our own personal anxieties about end of life care and death and dying, which I think we have to overcome sure. and treat people like we'd like to be treated ourselves.
0: Absolutely. So speaking of advanced directives, what do you recommend people do? I know that most states have a pulse or a MOLST. Uh, my husband and I have used mydirectives.com. What do you recommend?
1: I use mydirectives.com too, but advanced directives and most POLST are different things. So advanced okay. directives are completed by an individual. You make it yourself. There's state of Maryland forms, AARP as a website. By the way, I, I always emphasize it's not just for old people. Mm-hmm. Um, you and I are probably over 40 by now. So, you know, we, we, we think about the future, but the three most famous cases in American legal history were women under 30, Cruzan, Quinlan and uh, Terry Shivo, maybe yes. most people remember her name. And young people tend to get in trouble catastrophically. Mm-hmm. Uh, major trauma, subarachnoid hemorrhage, big bleeding inside the brain, or some terrible disease. And so it becomes relevant for them as well. In the Terry Schiavo case, she didn't have an advanced directive. Her family blew up, became a big national cause
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, celebra. So, you know, you can change these. I like my directives, maybe like you. It's online, it's free, it's easy, has a lot of good information, uh, but there are others, and whatever you do uh, is fine. Molst POLST, MOST stands for medical orders for life-sustaining treatment and pulsed is physician orders for life-sustaining treatment. It's, it's in many states, not all. Molst mm-hmm. um, is in Maryland, medical meaning physician, nurse practitioner, physician's assistant. And those are medical orders that are coordinated with the patient because advanced directors are kind of general care terms and also who generally gonna speak for you if you can't speak for yourself. More important now in the pandemic than ever. Right. When families aren't at the bedside, whereas uh, most pulse goes into much more detailed clinical decisions about antibiotics, transfusion, surgery, dialysis. So it's much, much more in depth, um, and that has to be signed by the provider. And usually, we try to get the patient or their surrogate to sign too.
0: Wow! When I look at the table of contents, it almost looks like your last to-do list. In life, But don't wait till the last minute to accomplish these things. And you don't go uh, really into specifics of like pain and symptom management. I do see you have some information on hospice and palliative care. As you know, that's what I do for a living. It still dismays me how often people don't get a palliative care consult or patients are so late coming to hospice. What are your thoughts on that?
1: Well, there's many different ways to look at it, but one of the ways, you know, all else fails, think about it from a financial point of view. Hospice care, you're entitled to six months of service. If right. you continue to live, you can continue. The average length of stay in hospice is about 14 to 20 days. So, in effect, you've paid for six months and you get in 20 days. That doesn't make any sense. If you pay right. for six months, get the six months of service. And hospice service is really wonderful. Hats off to the people who do that work and the people who support them. And I know you were really one of the leaders in this. So that goes to you,
2: well, thank uh,
1: you. Too as well, Dr. McPherson. But, the, 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 and, but too often, both for hospice and palliative care, the attitude has been in the past, and this is what we're trying to change. Well, we don't know what else to do. Let's throw in the towel and call those hospice and palliative care people. Yeah. There's a famous study, palliative care is more about comfort and function and, and being able to live your life. Hospice care is end of life care and they provide great support to families. But there was a great study in the New England Journal, two groups, uh, people with identical lung cancers, they divided them into two groups. They both got the same care, but one got palliative care early. And the palliative care group lived longer, spent less money and were more, ha- more content with their lives. So it's a trifecta. Let's see, you're happier, you live longer, and you spend less money, Mm -hmm. what's wrong with that? So, um, you know, we we can look at this from any number of different ways. The book does go into pain management discussions, by the way, and I talk about medical cannabis, and the opioid issue, and things like that. It it is in there, because one of the the things people fear at the end of life, it's typically, I'm going to be in pain, and I'm going to be isolated, and both of those fears can be managed.
0: Yeah, that's right. You know, talking about palliative care, I'm reminded of the expression I've heard Dr. Steve Panalat from California say many times that if palliative care were a medication, every prescriber would want to prescribe it and every patient would want it because it's just an added extra layer of support for the patient and the family. So that's why I would encourage practitioners to consider a palliative care consult when someone's in the hospital or the nursing home. Uh, don't wait so long. I mean, as you said, that that big study with uh, the non-small cell lung cancer patients, very, very impressive.
1: So uh, that, that, that quote is in my book, too, by the oh, way. Oh, is it? Awesome. Uh, I, I, I actually got that from you, and I got permission from him to use it. So that's thank wonderful. you very
0: for- That's great. So what about the fears with cannabis or opioids that people have at the end of life? What do you, how would you explain that to a patient? So many times we will have a patient in hospice and it's the adult son or daughter who says, oh, no, 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 I don't want my mom to be addicted. How would you handle that?
1: Well, obviously if someone's uh, really in hospice care and it's predicted they're gonna have you know, less than six months to live, I don't think addiction is really an issue. Constipation may be an issue, but <laughs> not addiction. In terms of medical cannabis, gee, in the election that just happened, five or six states added medical or personal use cannabis to their regimen. These were Mm -hmm. conservative states as well as non. So I think medical cannabis is becoming more and more accepted. I certainly support it. I know you did, too. We'd love to see more science. But in the meantime, um, I think the deeper question, and I I throw this out to this audience and any audiences, think of it this way. We're all going to die. Let's accept that as a given here. So where do you imagine yourself that you'd like to be in the last day, hours, minutes of your life? Where are you? Who's around you? What's going on? And that's a five second thought exercise. Mm-hmm. There you go. Now, I've done that to many audiences and nobody says killed in a fiery car crash. Nobody says shot in a drive-by. <laughs> nobody says dying in an IC- ICU in an intensive care unit, long past any hope of recovery, hooked to machines and monitors with all my bodily functions being serviced my family a hundred yards down the hall in some, in some room. Now I want the best of modern medicine when, it, when it's appropriate. You know, I want the best of both worlds. I want the best of modern medicine. But when uh, the end of life care comes, I wanna be what everybody else is at home with my family and friends around me pain-free.
2: Mm-hmm. And that's
1: the better end that we can be aiming for. And so pain management, cannabis, um, hospice care, palliative care, pharmacy consult, all those things Can play a role so can music therapy acupuncture um you know recreation activities Uh, my my advanced directives says take me outside as much as possible and if i can't go outside at least put me near a window so i can look outside i also say i want control of the remote (laughs) you deserve Uh, it at that point (laughs) yeah yeah so so all these things are part of it but i i can't medical cannabis is fine in that situation and i think all the other drugs can be managed uh, perfectly appropriately, whether they're pain medicines or sedatives or whatever. Uh-huh. I, see,
0: I see that you have a chapter on how to deal with dementia. That is such a challenging disease for the family and the informal caregivers. What are your thoughts and what do you discuss in that chapter?
1: Well, the, you could do all the things right, but there are no easy answers for some situations. And dementia is clearly one of them. Maybe we can manage it a little bit better, but it's really a, a tough one. And there is the dementia uh, uh, avalanche that's coming, mm-hmm. um, or More Americans, we're all going to be dealing with this. And we don't know what, you know, seriously demented people are experiencing, mm-hmm. and how they feel and how they value li- their lives. But the important thing is they should do it before they get demented, or very early dementia, when those first signs come up. If you haven't completed an advanced directive, that's the time to do it and have the conversation with your, the people that you've designated so they know what you want. Mm-hmm. Um, there's no way to understand that there's no easy solution to this problem, it's one of those very difficult things. And there's so many tough decisions. I mean, the person's somewhat demented, they fall and break their hip. Do you you treat that or not treat that? Do you treat it aggressively, knowing they may not be able to do the physical therapy required? What if they then get pneumonia? Do you treat that? Well, if it's mild, maybe yes, or maybe not, if it's real serious. I mean, these are very difficult questions and they're not hypotheticals. These are going on in every hospital in the United States, every, every hour of every day, People are trying to make these decisions. And so the element that's, that, that can be operative and that is often missing is what would the patient have wanted?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And what you have wanted, may, what I've wanted, what our spouses may have wanted may be entirely different. Mm-hmm. And I also tell stories in the book of two people who, one who, who pulled the plug early a little bit, you might say, the other who wanted a full court press. In both our situations, I would not have done, if I had their situation, I would not have done that. But it was what they wanted, and that's what I respected.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: That time is very interesting. interesting. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I, uh, someone, someone, one of the students in our master's program sent me a, a link to a video of an elderly woman in Spain, uh, quite elderly, who was a prima ballerina in her prime. And oh. someone in her family, a young man, put headphones on her and played Tchaikovsky's Swan Lake. And she immediately snapped to and did all of the dance movements sitting in her wheelchair. And I sent it out to everyone and said, if you don't cry over this, you have a heart of stone. But that is a heartbreaking disease. What else one other
1: else? thing I say about dementia, though, is that not all dementia is Alzheimer's, and people should have a proper workup because Absolutely. of vitamin deficiencies, a condition called hydrocephalus, or a whole bunch of things. They don't come up too often, but yeah. you should get the workup because some of them are treatable, or at least the damage could be minimized before we... End up with that term at the end. Some of
0: the medications we use for Alzheimer's can be harmful in other dementias, like Lewy body, for example. There you go. So it's very important. What else? What do you think is a gem in your book? There are so many. What What else should we talk about? Would you like to mention?
1: I think the key thing is the empowerment issue, Mm -hmm. and a lot of people, um, you know, the healthcare system has a tendency despite all the caring and compassion that's out there, kind of pushing people one way or another, you may have to be your own advocate for this or the advocate for the person. If you're their surrogate, they've designated you. By the way, on the surrogate thing, you can also say in your advanced directive, I choose this person and that person, but you may have a in your family, an annoying relative who mm-hmm. takes over conversations. You can say, please don't let Cousin Fred in the room when you're discussing my end of life care. You know, you can anticipate some of these things. There's a lot of stuff you can do within the advanced directive. But I think it's taking taking advantage of the tools that are before us that we collectively don't. Our culture values, we say we value individual autonomy, individual respect, mm-hmm. and respect for values. But in this one arena, which all of us are in, only 40% of complete advanced directives in our study, and by the way, more recent studies, that number hasn't.
2: Budged. Oh,
1: no, no. So, so this is something where you can actually shift the likelihood about what happens to you according to your values. And you may have to be a pretty strong advocate. Look, I get it's a hard topic. I get it it makes people uncomfortable. It makes me uncomfortable. I mean, I I, I can't, I got elected six times to the Maryland General Assembly, won six elections, and people would say to me, Delegate Moorheim, what are you working on? I'd run down all the issues, and then I'd say, uh, have you completed your advance directive? I want to talk about your death, the death of everybody you know. Also, please vote for me in the next election. <laughs> I, I, and, and, and people say, "What are you? You're talking about all this stuff. You, you, do you want, want to win the election? Are you Doctor Doom and Gloom." And actually, the opposite happened. I got re-elected every time I ran, and people really appreciated. They wanted someone to break the ice because we're living through this. We're living through it because we're all human. We know that life is finite. We're not immortal. And that's in fact, what makes life beautiful and, mm-hmm. and precious. Um, and so we have an opportunity here that nobody's had before. It may be difficult to think through, but once you do, you the burdens really come off. It's amazing. And I'd love to share an anecdote about that if I may. Yes. This is when it really got driven home to me many years ago when I was a young doc. And uh, the call came in and an old elderly lady was brought in and it was clear right from the beginning, she'd had a major neurological catastrophe and in intracranial hemorrhage. As it turned out, we did the whole workup and stuff. And it took hours to go through this. The calls went out to the family. They started coming in in, in small groups and I put them, we put them in the quiet room. We could have this discussion. And I observed the family and they were you know, really getting in arguments with each other, as sometimes happens when families get together, whether it's holiday time or a stressful situation like this. And the ones who knew her best said, let grandma die in peace. And the ones who knew her less or came from farther away looked at me from time to time and said, you do everything for her. Well, it turns out she had an advanced directive. I, it was obtained for me. I read it and said, if I'm an extremist and there's no hope of recovery, and she and, and we had the neurosurgeons and the neurologists, and we went through the whole thing. And there was none, she just terrible intracranial hemorrhage bleeding inside the brain. And I went back to the family room and I said, and all hell was breaking loose. And finally they quieted down all the screaming and yelling and tears and accusations and guilt was all coming out. And I said, okay, listen, let's all take a deep breath. This says, if I'm in this state, no heroic efforts. So I'm going to go in the room and I'm going to disconnect the medicines. I'm going to take the tube out of the windpipe. I'm going to do all these things and you can come in there with me. And you might think at that moment, it'd get more explosive. Actually, it quieted down completely and the burden was lifted. We all went in the room together. I did the little medical procedures that I had to do. And then I st- stood in the back of the room and watched this family that only a few minutes ago was at each other's throats, family friction. They gathered at the head of the bed. They stroked her brow. They held her hand. They um, whispered in her ear. They said things They may have sang songs and said some prayers, whatever they did. And I was looking at this woman. I thought I'll never get to talk to her. I don't know her. But she's enlightened me and giving me a gift and she's given a gift to her family if you're awake and alert and competent you make your own medical decisions so advanced directives and all these things come up when you can't and so she took this burden off her family her mm-hmm. family came together in closure and i thought she's really giving me a lesson here we say we love the people we love but we don't act like it we don't take care of this paperwork we don't do this little bit of work um, that would take care of them. We don't want to leave them in that situation like this family could have been, like the Terry Shive family was, or like other families are that I see all the time in my clinical work and maybe you do too. The next day I sat down with my wife. We had just had one little baby at the time. I said, you know, we're going to clean our vast directives right now. I'm not going to leave you in this lurch and I don't want you to leave me in that lurch either uh, with this situation. So that, that drove it home for me personally. And that also launched me on this trajectory.
0: Wow, that's a lovely story. I know when my mom was ill, she did not have an advanced directive and didn't want to talk about it. My mother hated what I did for a living her entire life. She hated that I did hospice because so they all die. I said, I, I know mom, but sure. uh, we did have a conversation. And uh, sadly, three months later, I had to recall that conversation to help direct her care. But you're right, it did take a big burden. It's, it's so much anguish involved in those kinds of decisions.
1: Well, there's already anguish, but by doing some paperwork, um, you relieve a lot of that uh, anguish. I mean, nobody gets out of here alive, despite all the, as I like to say sometimes, despite all the great advances in medical care, the, the death rate in this country is the same as every other country in the world, one per person. And uh, You know, I try some levity in there too, because I get this is tough and uh, bringing it up is hard. But I think everybody who's listening to this, I hope they will take this to heart. In the book, the better end, or preparing for a better end, and the website, I'll plug thebetterend.com. I try to walk through in a very practical way. Here's the kinds of things that can happen. Here's some of the choices. Here's what you might have to do or not do, um, but it's up to you. It's not preachy. I'm not telling people what to do. I'm suggesting how how they can approach this because it's going to come for all of us. And you can put your head in the sand, or you can deal with with enlightenment and empowerment. I like the latter.
0: Absolutely. So who do you think should buy this book? Everybody in North America or the whole world?
1: Yes, absolutely. That was the easiest <laughs> question you've asked. Everybody over, well, I do believe that everybody over the age of 18 should complete advanced directives. And when I brought it up to my now adult children, one of them said, gee, dad, when I was 16, I checked organ donation. People, Teenagers have, are aware that at the end of life care comes. And when they're 18, they're age of majority and they're adults. And mm-hmm. I think we should treat them as adults. And what you choose at 18, obviously, is going to be different than when you're 28, 38, 58, 88, or
2: 98.
1: Mm-hmm. So, um, And your life situation may change. Relationships may change. Your values may change. Your spiritual orientation may change. You can update an advanced directive
2: mm-hmm.
1: anytime you want. Mydirectives.com, you can sit down this afternoon and change it and do they, it next week.
0: They even send you a reminder once a year saying, do you want to revisit mm-hmm. your advanced directive? Do you want to make any updates? Do you want to review it? So they they do a nice job with that. Okay, so I'm gonna brag on you for a minute now. So you'll just have to sit there and listen to it. So when I went on Amazon, I see that your book is number one in the field of geriatrics, number eight in public health and number 17 in ethics. And when you consider that Amazon carries 32 million books, That's pretty awesome, that's pretty sweet. And your book has earned many endorsements from diverse groups and very distinguished people, including Dr. Leanna Wen, Dr. Leon McDougall, who's the president of the National Medical Association, which is the oldest and largest organization of black physicians in the U.S., two U.S. senators, faith leaders, and many, many more. And you just mentioned the website, www.thebetterend.com. Can they go there to order the book or do you recommend Amazon, what what do you think?
1: Whatever works. if they go to the website and they go to the ordering tab, they can see Johns Hopkins Press, which gives them a 30% discount.
2: So oh, that's, nice.
1: that's what doing for those who want to do that. But Amazon is fine. It makes a great holiday gift. In fact, it's a Thanks. good gift anytime for anybody. Actually, I do have one friend who is in his 50s and his siblings, three or four siblings, I think we're all in that same age range. Their parents were in their 80s. He had a heck of a time having this conversation get started. So we bought everybody a copy of the book, Uh gave it to them, and then they all read it. This was the first book back in 2010 called The Better End, which was endorsed by Maya Angela on the front Uh cover. That's awesome. But he gave it to all of them. They read it, and then they had a conversation because the book brought them all up to the same starting point. It was an easier way to break the ice with their parents than sort of a confrontational intervention, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of people have found it useful that way. I know uh, there are some attorneys to do estate planning. Um, they they, they was like when I was a young person, we dealt with the will part, you know, our, our shaky finances at the time, and who would take care of the baby if we weren't around. We left the advanced directive to the side. That happens a lot. So this helped her clients complete the advanced directive. She gave them the book in bulk. Mm-hmm. Uh, she bought the book in bulk and gave it away to her clients with a sticker with her name on it. Mm-hmm. And uh, they were thrilled. Not only were they thrilled because it helped them deal with this issue, but a lawyer gave them something for free. There you go. So, they were very happy. It got her referrals and built her business.
0: Absolutely. Well, so everybody,
1: applies nice to everybody. Whether you read the book or not get the book or not, I think the book's the best thing out there to get you through this stuff. But take care of the paperwork. Do the right thing for yourself and your family.
0: Well, I'd like to thank you, Dr. Moorheim, not only for our time together today, but for your work throughout your entire career in this very sensitive field. You've done so much to advance healthcare. And I know I'm personally appreciative, and I know the citizens of Maryland are. And now with your book and your wife's collaboration on the book, people worldwide can read it. So thank you so much. I appreciate your time.
1: Always good to be with you. Thank you. Absolutely.
0: So I'd like to thank Dr. Morham again, and thank you for listening to Palliative Care Chat Podcast. This is Dr. Lynn McPherson, and this presentation is copyright 2020, University of Maryland. For more information on our completely online Master of Science and Graduate Certificate program in palliative care, or for permission requests regarding this podcast, please visit graduate.umaryland.edu forward slash palliative. Thank you.